certainly getting my steps in this morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, I would invite you to take them and turn with me to the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John, we are continuing in our study of this first epistle of the Apostle John. And this morning we come to the fifth verse of the first chapter, and we're going to be looking through to the second verse of the second chapter. So that is 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. And as we begin our time together, I want to go ahead and read our text for us so that we can just get this passage out on the table before our eyes and see what it is that we are dealing with. And so one last time, if you're able to do so, I want to invite you all to stand with me as I read our text for us and ask for God's blessing on our time as we study it and seek to apply it to our lives. So starting with verse 5 of chapter 1, this is what the Apostle John writes. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at your word this morning, would you open up the eyes of our hearts so that we would behold wonderful things. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we look at this passage together this morning, I want to talk with you on the subject of dragging sin into the light. Dragging sin into the light. As we begin to make our journey through what is really the beginning of the actual message of John's letter here, perhaps it would be helpful for us to keep in mind the somewhat dreadful experience of going into seeing your physician for an annual physical exam. I realize that just by mentioning those three words, annual physical exam, some of you just now felt a tangible spike in your blood pressure, your heart's racing, you're sweating a little bit, your Apple Watch is alerting you, asking you if everything's okay. However, I really do think that there are some helpful parallels that we may draw between what the Apostle John is seeking to do here in this letter and what a good doctor or a good physician seeks to do when they observe a patient for an annual exam. Just as a doctor will take various different readings of our vitals when we go in to visit them, such as our, our blood pressure, our heart rate, our cholesterol, our height, our weight, and a whole host of other uncomfortable things. And the reason that he does this is in order to examine and test our overall physical health. Well, in a similar way, so too here in this letter, the Apostle John is seeking to measure our overall spiritual health by applying various different tests and questions to us in order to examine us in the light of God's Word. And so, as we walk through this text this morning, we're really going to see the first of these series of tests that John presents to his readers throughout the course of this letter. And, and these tests really come to us in the form of three implicit questions that John levels at us in this passage in order to detect the validity of our spiritual pulse. In other words, the assumption that John makes here is that if we are in Christ, 
then there will be a definite spiritual heartbeat within us that necessarily will produce certain discernible signs of the eternal life that we have claimed to have received. And so these three questions or tests are really what we're going to be structuring the, the bulk of our time around together this morning as we journey and make our way through these eight verses together this morning. And so if you have your handouts, beginning there with point number one, the first question that John seems to place before us as we examine ourselves in light of God's Word is one that is fairly straightforward, one that leaves very little room for debate, and that question is, do you walk in the light? Do you walk in the light? John begins the message of this letter with a monumental and fundamental truth that we must all have settled before taking one step forward in our Christian life. And we see this set before us right out of the gate in verse 5 where John writes, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. As we make our way through the remainder of this passage, one of the things that we are going to begin to quickly notice is that just about every practical exhortation and point of application that John draws from this text, it really flows directly from this primary doctrine that he sets before us here in verse 5. And that primary doctrine is none other than the absolute moral purity of God. Look again at verse 5 and notice John saying, without equivocation, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, as we read this, this might seem like a strong enough statement to us as it is on the surface. However, the fact is that the English language still it does not quite draw out the complete force of what it is that John is trying to communicate here about the absolute moral purity of God. It doesn't, it doesn't quite do justice to what he's trying to say. It's been observed by many different Bible scholars before that in the Greek language, there are actually four negatives that John employs here to communicate the complete absence of darkness from God's character. And because of this, they say this verse could literally be translated, God is light, and in him there is no darkness, no, not none. God is light, and in him there is no darkness, no, not none. Now, in our human experience, the, the most pure form of light that we can imagine is the sun itself. And this makes sense because this is, from our vantage point, really the source of all light. All the light that we perceive around us and that we experience in our daily lives could really be traced back to that glowing ball of fire in outer space that we all call the sun. However, as many astrologers and scientists have had to agree over the span of human history, the fact remains that even the sun itself has its spots and blemishes. But not so with our holy God. God himself knows nothing of such spots and blemishes. His character and being is without any hint of darkness whatsoever and without any infraction of light. In fact, if you're able to, you might even jot down in the margin of your Bible there next to 1 John chapter 1, James chapter 1, verse 17, where James, the half-brother of Jesus, elaborates on this point and further clarifies it, saying, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, God is completely holy. There is no mixture of sin in anything that he does. There is nothing cunning or, or deceitful or twisted about who he is. Every word he speaks is true, and everything he wills and decrees is absolutely perfect and unpunished by evil. This is your God. This is the God that we have come here this morning to worship. 
And it, it is the awareness of this fact, John says, that serves as the basis for all Christian morality and all Christian conduct. In other words, it is the character of God that defines what is to be the character of the children of God and of all whom belong to his royal family. And so it, it is from the point of this airtight logic that John goes on to draw what really ought to be the most obvious of all implications from this fundamental truth. Look back with me at verses 7 and 8, and notice what John says. He says, in effect, all right, well, if we are in agreement that God is light and in him there is not even a hint of darkness, well then, verse 7, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Years ago, around the time when I was about 12 years old, my family was a part of a small church plant that for its first few years met in the Tinseltown movie theaters up in Louisville. True story. And so the deal was that in order for us to use this space for our services, we'd have to get there bright and early on Sunday mornings and set up the entire theater for our worship services. And as soon as we were done with our services, we had to tear it all back down and reset it for the early afternoon matinee showings there at Tinseltown. Well, as a 12-year-old kid, it really only took me about two or three weeks of being a part of the setup and teardown team there on Sunday mornings to realize something that perhaps many of you all have realized at one point or another if you've ever stood in the middle of a fully lit movie theater. And that is this, spoiler alert, movie theaters are absolutely disgusting. <laughs> you might think that that comfy recliner that you're sitting in while you're watching Top Gun is clean and sterilized and wiped down. Don't be deceived. There is about a 99% chance that you are actually sitting in a pile of someone's half-eaten popcorn, crusted boogers, and dried Dr. Pepper that's been spilt all over the seats. But of course, many of us never realize or acknowledge this until we find ourselves standing in the middle of a movie theater with the lights turned completely on. What John is clearly saying to us here in this passage is that the Christian is one who lives with the lights on. He does not turn a blind eye to the mess in his life. He does not go around shouting to others, I have fellowship with God. I know him. While all the while living a life patterned by walking carelessly in the darkness. Rather, the Christian is one who realizes that there is no more dangerous place to be in our lives than hidden in the darkness of our sins. That though it might seem safe, though it might feel comfortable to hide in the secrecy of darkness, the fact remains that whether the lights are on or off, there is still popcorn in the seat of our heart. There is still sin that lurks about within us. And furthermore, they realize that the light of God's holiness is not what creates this sin within us. It is simply what reveals that this sin is within us. It simply shows us what is already there. In fact, it could well be said that the closer we walk to the light of God's holiness, the more keenly aware we will become of our sin. I mean, think about this for just a moment. Was this not exactly the experience of the Apostle Paul, who considered himself to be the chief of sinners, though many of us here today would consider him to be the chief of saints? And the reason for this is because Paul, his experience that he walked so close to the light of God's holiness that he could not ignore, he could not turn a blind eye to the reality of the blackness of the sin in his own heart. And so the question for you and I as we consider this first test that John levels at us here in his spiritual exam room is simply, do you walk in the light? Do you walk in the light? Are you an open book before others? Are you transparent 
about your sin? Are you accountable to any other believers in your life about the areas of sinful struggle that you fight on a daily basis? Or do you walk in the darkness? Is your life marked by a hiddenness and a secrecy that others are often deceived by? Do you find yourself constantly covering up over your tracks, deleting your search history, telling your spouse half-truths about the charges on your bank statements? Is there anyone in your life with whom you have no secrets whatsoever? Could you, with a clear conscience, take your phone and hand it to the person that you are sitting beside and give them free reign to roam about fully as they please? I'll remind you of those chilling words of our Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 8, verse 17, where he said, For all that is secret will eventually be brought into the open, and everything that is concealed will be brought to light and made known to all. Now, of course, there is a promise tucked away at the end of 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, for those who do walk in the light, who are an open book before God and others. And of course, that promise is that for those whose life is patterned by walking in the light, the blood of Jesus will wipe away every single sin that that light reveals. This is the hope for us sinners in the midst of difficult passages such as these. And we need to remind ourselves of these texts in those moments when we are aware of our sin. However, before we deal more fully with the glorious hope of the forgiveness that Jesus offers to us, we still need to address two more diagnostic questions that John puts to us in the remainder of this passage. And so as we move on and come now to verses 8 through 10, it appears that John seems to realize that by raising the point of practicing the truth and walking in the light, there may be some, in fact, maybe this is you this morning, who upon reading this letter accidentally interpret this teaching to mean that the Christian life must be one of complete sinless perfection and 100% perfect conformity and alignment to the commands and to the will and to the word of God. Someone who thinks this way might be led to reason such as this. Well, if a Christian is one who walks in the light, then surely I must not be a Christian if I find myself occasionally stumbling and tripping up into the darkness. Perhaps at times you've found yourself reasoning this way before. If that's you, it is in the interest of dispelling that lie and dispelling that myth that John goes on to further clarify this point about walking in the light. And we see him do this in verses 8 through 10. And so that brings us to the second question John sets before us this morning as we seek for evidence of a spiritual pulse within us. And that second question you'll see on your handout is, do you acknowledge and confess your sin? Do you acknowledge and confess your sin? Look back with me now, starting in verse 8. John writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. You know, whenever we read the Bible, one of the most basic rules of interpretation that we must always keep in mind is that we are never to interpret the entire Bible through the lens of one verse, but rather, whenever we are dealing with any one particular verse, we are to bring the full weight of the full scope of the Bible to bear upon it. In other words, we understand individual verses in light of the entire Bible. We do not understand the entire Bible in light of individual verses. And nowhere, perhaps, is this more important for us to keep in mind and to remember than when we are dealing with the subject of indwelling sin in the lives of believers. Listen again to what John emphatically says here in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Let me try putting this in as simple of terms as possible. 
one of the clearest and most definitive marks that you are indeed a Christian is not that you do not sin, but rather when you sin, you confess your sins. Let me ask you, do you find at times that you are worried or concerned about your own salvation because of the presence of some particular sin in your life? Are you unsettled by the fact that you just cannot seem to gain victory over this one sin that has plagued you for years upon years upon years on end? It just nags at you, it eats at you, it kills you. Do you find that this is your experience from time to time? This is my experience. And if so, let me offer you something that ought to bring you great comfort this morning. Unbelievers are not concerned about the sin that resides in their heart. Concern over your sin is a mark that you are a believer, not an unbeliever. The person most to be worried about in the church today is not the one who sins, but rather the one who refuses to acknowledge their sin. In fact, if I can make this even more personal for us this morning, let me put it to you this way. The time when you and I should be most alarmed about our own spiritual condition, the moment when we should be most concerned about the state of our own souls is not in those moments when we are grieving some particular sin, but rather in those moments when we deny and refuse to face up with the reality of some sin in our lives. See, the very sight of sin itself is indeed in itself a mark of genuine faith. And the reason for this is because when God by the Holy Spirit took up residence in your heart at the moment of your salvation, one of the various different ministries that he employs in your life now is that he has turned on the light switch in your souls. And he enables you to perceive things about your spiritual condition that you could not see before. But for the unbeliever, this is not the case. God's word tells us that he is utterly blind to these things. And that is why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is essentially what John is saying to us here in different words in our text. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then restate it again there in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And so if you are here this morning, and the posture of your heart is such that you you functionally deny and refuse to acknowledge the presence of any real, tangible, practical sin residing within you, then let me say to you, on the basis of God's word this morning, you are a liar. The truth is not in you. No one enters the kingdom of God who does not first acknowledge the sin in their heart that nailed Christ to the cross. This is an imperative first step in the Christian life. However, according to the Apostle John, though all of that that we have just said is true, he actually argues that we must go even further. In other words, the mere acknowledgement, the mere recognition of sin, he says, is not enough. Not only must we acknowledge that there is sin in our hearts, but also we must confess the sin that is in our heart. If we stop and think about it, acknowledging our sin without confessing our sin is really no more helpful to us on a spiritual level than acknowledging that we have a cancerous tumor growing inside of us and not going to the doctor to have it properly dealt with. And so in verse 9, one of the most often quoted verses in the entire Bible, John brings our attention to the cure for this deadly disease called sin. And we could probably all quote it. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, we talk about words like confession a lot, but I wonder if we truly understand what is meant by them. 
what does it mean to confess our sins? What would it look like for you and I to walk out of here this morning and to truly confess our sins to God? Well, in an attempt to hopefully clarify this for us a bit, I think that there are at least three crucial steps to biblical confession that we must take if we are going to receive the forgiveness offered to us at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so, if I can, I want to take just a moment to, to pull the car over on the side of the road, to put it in park, pull the e-brake, to step out and just take a minute and look at each of these three steps for a moment to hopefully further clarify for us what it looks like to confess our sins before God. And so first of all, if we're going to confess our sins in a biblical fashion, the first step seems to be that we must quit trying to justify our sin. We must quit trying to justify our sin. There is no negotiating at the foot of the cross. There's no wiggle room when it comes to our sin. It's either sinful or it's not. It's either a, a breach of God's law and His holy command, or else it is not. Yet, although many of us here would agree with what I have just said, every single one of us here is still prone to the temptation of trying to justify our sins before God. If we don't do this outwardly, we all do it inwardly all the time. Well, God, I... I'm not drinking as much as I used to. Doing a lot better than I was 10 years ago. I'm not looking at images as graphic as I used to. I'm not gossiping as much as I know other people out there are gossiping. You should see me. You could fill in the blank for yourself, but regardless of our excuses, at the end of the day, God's Word tells us that self-justification is the surest path to self-condemnation. So if we're going to sincerely confess our sins, we must first quit trying to justify our sins. We must, in a word, drop the gloves. The second step, then, is that we must take God's side against ourselves. We must take God's side against ourselves. The word confession in the original language that the Bible was written in, it literally means to say the same thing as. To say the same thing as. Therefore, to confess our sins is literally to agree with God about our sins. It is to use God's labels and God's words to define our actions. It is to say, God, that, that lustful look was not just a lustful look, but according to your word in Matthew chapter 6, it was flat-out adultery. Father, my bitter and resentful spirit toward that relative is not just excusable anger, but it was, for all practical purposes, murder in the courtroom of heaven. Until we are ready to paint ourselves as black as the Bible paints our sin, we are not prepared to confess our sins in the fashion that God is after. Third and finally, if we're going to confess our sins, we must realize that confession is to be directed toward the one who it is against. Confession is to be directed toward the one who it is against. In Psalm chapter 51, we read it earlier in our service, King David, he takes the lid off of his boiling pot of guilt. And he looks Godward and he says, against you and you only have I sinned. The tax collector in Jesus' parable, when he goes into the temple to pray, it is said that he, he beat his chest and said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And you too, if you would truly confess your sin, must go to the one whom your sin is ultimately against. And that is Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's been said before that all sin at its root is cosmic treason. You don't need a priest. You don't need next week's mass service 
Because you have, according to the book of Hebrews, a high priest in heaven who is ready and willing to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you of not just some, but all of your unrighteousness. A church member once asked his pastor what it means to be forgiven. With a quick response, the pastor said, to be forgiven means God has deleted all of your files. God has deleted all your files, and that is the promise that he offers to you here. If you confess your sins, he will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Thomas Watson, uh, a Puritan pastor who lived in the 1600s, once wrote a powerful little book that I would commend to you called The Doctrine of Repentance. The Doctrine of Repentance. And in this book, as he's speaking about confession, he says, confession purges out sin. It purges out sin. That's vivid and graphic imagery. But he goes on to say that if sin is a bad blood, then confession is the opening up of the vein to bleed it out. The application for you and I cannot be much more clear. Sin can only damage and destroy us so long as it is bottled up within us. In other, in other words, hidden sin is soul-eroding sin. But friends, the good news is that we do not have to hide our sin any longer because Jesus Christ has made it possible for us to take the lid off of our sin and to pour out every last drop of guilt that is in the bottle. He has prescribed for us the cure, and the cure is the healing balm of confession. Let me again read to you from the words of Thomas Watson, who says, It is not so much the disease that offends the physician as it is the contempt of his remedy. It is not so much the sins we have committed that provoke and grieve Christ as that we refuse the, re the remedy of repentance which he prescribes. Brothers and sisters, may we not be people who hiss at and reject the gracious remedy of confessing our sins and being cleansed from all unrighteousness. You know, as I was preparing this message earlier this past week, I really could not help but think about how confession really has a contagious effect in the life of the church. In other words, there's not just individual blessing in confession, there, there, there is, but there's also this layer of corporate blessing tied up in confession as well. It's been my experience in my Christian life that when a brother has confessed his most grievous sins to me, in that moment, rather than it leading me to think less of him, it actually leads me to think more highly of him because of the integrity of his profession. And in turn, it actually fills me with confidence to turn around and confess my sins back to him. I trust this has perhaps been your experience at one point or another in your Christian life. A brother or a sister who you are close with has confessed their sins to you, and this gives you the confidence and the trust to turn around and confess your sins back to them. We need a whole lot more of that in the church today. We need to be a people who are not surprised by and afraid of each other's sins. And the only way that this is going to happen is if we cultivate a regular practice of authentic and biblical confession with one another. Well, that brings us finally then to our third and final point of examination this morning. And that is this final question that John implies in the first and second verse of the second chapter. And that question is, do you wage war against your sin? Do you wage war against your sin? As John continues in this train of thought that he's been building upon, he now offers a statement to sort of qualify everything that he has just previously said. Look back with me in your Bibles at chapter 2, verse 1. John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you. In other words, 
the whole purpose for why I picked up my pen in the first place, the reason I'm sending you this letter is so that you may not sin. If you're anything like me, when you come to this passage in your Bible reading, you are often so eager to get to the second half of this verse that you just rush so quickly immediately past the first part of what John wants to address here. But we need to catch what John is saying here in verse 1. So let me read this for you again. Listen again to how he puts this. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Currently, Austin Lewis and I are reading through a well-known book together written by a man named Jerry Bridges that is titled The Pursuit of Holiness. Perhaps you've heard of this or read this yourself. And in this book, Jerry Bridges makes a statement that I must confess has marked a great deal of my Christian life. He says, as I was recently studying John's exhortation not to sin in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, I suddenly realized that deep within my heart, my real aim was less than that of the Apostle John's. His will was that I may not sin. My will so often is that I would not sin very much. I imagine many of us here could relate with the sentiment of Jerry Bridges here. If we were honest, a lot of the time, our real aim in life is not to be without sin, but just to be without as much sin as somebody else. But let me remind you, God's will for us is not that we would sin less, but rather that we would sin no more. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, Jesus says. John puts it this way, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. As Christians, one mark that we are truly in Christ is that we do not grow content with the sin that is in our hearts. And this is not just referred to those bigger, more obvious sins that we so often speak of, but also of those subtle or so-called more respectable sins that we often grow complacent with. God not only wants us to be a people who abstain from adultery or drunkenness, surely he wants us to abstain from those things. But he also wants us to be a people who abstain from those lesser sins of, of gossip, discontentment, envy, jealousy, gluttony, the list could go on. The reason for this is because God is light and he wants his people to walk in the light as he is in the light. I'm reminded of the exhortation Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, when he said, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. In other words, the Christian life is to be a fight. It is a war against our sin. It is a continual, full-fledged assault on the sin that remains within us. And I will just remind you at this point that there are no neutral soldiers in battle. You are either fighting against your sin or you are fighting against your God. There is no middle ground. So here in chapter 2, verse 1, it really is as though the Apostle John, in his old age, he grabs us by the collar. He pulls us close. He looks us in the eye and he says to us, if you are a Christian, if you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, then God's will for your life is that you do not sin. It's that you do not sin. But, and we can almost see John's fatherly grin begin to appear and glisten on his face as he says that word and turns the corner. But, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. As Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, thank God for the butts of the Bible. 
My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Friends, I don't know what your experience has been as a Christian, but I will tell you mine. And that is that this right here is the soil upon which I live my Christian life. I don't want to sin. I do not desire to sin. I don't hope to sin. I don't wake up in the morning and chart out and plan out my sin. But I do sin. And you sin. But thank God Almighty that verse 2 is true. I have an advocate with the Father, and His name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And if you are in Christ this morning, then you have an advocate too. God's Word tells you in no uncertain terms that the blood of this advocate, the sacrifice of this righteous one, has indeed taken away all of your sin. Is there a sin that you have committed in your life that seems to just continually haunt you? That, that nags at your conscience, that, that keeps you up at night, that though you have confessed it to God a hundred times over, you, you still feel condemned in your soul because of it. If so, Jesus, your advocate, at this very moment, is in the courtroom of heaven, pleading your case before the Father. He comes before him, and, and he pulls back his righteous white robes, and he says to the Father, look at my hands. See the holes where they pierce the nails. Look at my feet. See where they took the hammer and the nail and they drove it right on through into that wooden beam. Look at the hole in my side and see where the blood gushed out as I buckled underneath the weight of your wrath. Father, Jesus says on your behalf, their sins have been paid for, not in part, but the whole. And the Father looks at Christ and says, truly I say to you, you are my son. And if they are in you, then in you I am well pleased. If you are here this morning and you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have never confessed your sin to the one whom all your sin is against, if you've never dropped the gloves and taken God's side against yourself, then I urge you this morning to settle your case in heaven. For he is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In the Old Covenant, the rule was, sin and you will die. In the New Covenant, it is confess and you will live. Confession is not meant to be a burden to you. It is meant to remove your burdens from you. And you can have every single one of those burdens relieved from you this morning if you will simply put your faith where God has placed your sin at the cross of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let me invite you all to stand with me as we conclude our service by praying and thanking the Lord for His grace to us in Christ Jesus.